George Lucas's scripting process was rough. Writing didn't come naturally, and in a 1974 interview, Lucas said, quote, I bleed onto the page. It's just awful. If we're following his metaphor, his scripting process for Star Wars was changing veins as often as possible. Lucas's script went through a few wildly different drafts before it started to resemble the Star Wars we know. There was a two-page idea about the story of Mace Windy, a Jedi Bendu chronicled by his Padawan learner C2 Thorpe. Then there was a 10-page treatment that borrowed heavily from Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress, following an outlaw princess and her protector, the grizzled old General Luke Skywalker, with Skywalker training a bunch of orphaned boys to fight and fly and take down the Empire home planet in one-man fighter spacecraft. In the first complete draft of the script, an 18-year-old Anakin Starkiller was trained as a Jedi by General Luke Skywalker after his brother Deke was killed by a Sith Knight. Anakin and Luke even had a laser sword fight over the fact that Anakin was just too goddamn horny. By draft two, Luke was the lead, the abandoned son of a man known as the Starkiller, the last Jedi. Han Solo went from a green-skinned alien to a cabin boy to a pirate. Leia went from an unnamed goddess-like princess to Luke's cousin to rebel commander. R2-D2 had dialogue in some drafts. You have to remember when talking about early drafts of Star Wars that at the time, George Lucas wasn't Mr. Star Wars, he was Mr. American Graffiti. His 1973 nostalgia-fueled film about the early 60s was made for less than a million dollars and it was seriously doubted by home studio Universal, who only funded the film because Lucas's friend and mentor Francis Ford Coppola had signed on as a producer. The execs at Universal didn't get the film. They cut scenes, delayed the film's release, and basically left American Graffiti in limbo for almost a year. When it was finally released, it was a hit. It made $55 million in 1973 alone, and to date has made about $200 million when you add in video and re-releases, making it one of the most financially successful films of all time compared to budget. So when George Lucas was writing Star Wars, the stunning success of American Graffiti, in spite of studio skepticism, gave him a lot of wriggle room when the script looked rough. When it came time to find directors for its much-hyped new Star Wars films, Lucasfilm and Disney went looking for the next George Lucas. J.J. Abrams was an obvious easy choice for Episode 7. His 2009 reboot of Star Trek not only proved that he could make a big-budget, wide-appeal version of a nerd classic franchise, but as a film, it has a lot more in common with A New Hope than it does with really any Star Trek show or movie. With the start of the new trilogy in safe hands, Lucasfilm could take some risks with their directors for the standalone anthology films. Phil Lord and Chris Miller were proven animation and live-action comedy directors who had turned 21 Jump Street from a forgotten TV show into a massive box office success with their distinctive high-energy comic style that just doesn't leave time between jokes. Josh Trank was a buzzy 20-something whose first film Chronicle, an indie found footage superhero movie, had already gotten him the job of rebooting the Fantastic Four for Fox. Gareth Edwards was a British director who, like Josh Trank, had made a big impression with his low-budget sci-fi debut Monsters, and had already been hand-picked to reboot Godzilla for Warner Brothers. Both Trank and Edwards would be making a Star Wars movie as their third film, and Lord and Miller, while more experienced, would only be doing their third live-action film. They were all bright young men coming off surprise successes, and all of them loved Star Wars. They fit the mould of fanboy auteurs, who would treat the established Star Wars canon with respect, 
but still want to break new ground. Gareth Edwards was the only one to finish his film. This is Going Rogue, the story of Rogue One. I'm your host, Tansy Gardam, and in this episode, Rogue One finds its director and writers, while Lucasfilm tries to work out what exactly a Star Wars anthology film is. Until 2016, every Star Wars film centred on Skywalker family drama, but the galaxy had always felt larger than that. Part of the charm of the original trilogy was that the universe of Star Wars felt lived in. It had history and culture and weird little alien dudes who had their own things going on. With these new standalone stories, now officially titled Star Wars Anthology Movies, Lucasfilm finally had a chance to explore the rest of that universe. The stories they chose for their first three anthology films, Rogue One, Solo, and an ill-fated Boba Fett film, reflect a larger Disney strategy of basically putting out a few options and letting the market decide what direction the rest of their films would take. Would the audiences rather see a film filling in the backstory of a central character like Han, or a film fleshing out one of the most famous events in the Star Wars history? Or would they pick a combination of both and go for a bounty hunter film with a fan-favourite lead that filled in some of that gap between prequel and original trilogy? One really notable absence from any of these anthology films, though, is The Force. In steering clear of the prequels and leaving room for the sequels, Lucasfilm didn't have a lot of options for Jedi characters in the anthology films, but the choice not to include any is, well, it's a choice. If you asked anyone what makes a Star Wars movie, they'd probably say lightsabers, The Force, Jedi, Luke Skywalker. Avoiding the most famous elements of the Star Wars universe in those first three films meant deliberately expanding the definition of what a Star Wars movie is. It laid the groundwork for future films and shows to move even further from the original trilogy. It's no mistake that all of the first anthology films were tied to big, memorable parts of the universe. The spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. One other big part of the anthology films, at least early in development, was that they were also going to be lower budget. Lucasfilm were pitching them as the District Nines of the Star Wars universe. Still sci-fi adventure, but more grounded and gritty, and also only costing about $30 million if District Nine was genuinely the framework they were using. Almost everyone who worked on Rogue One, from John Knoll to the costume designers to the cinematographers, came in with the understanding that this was going to be a lower budget film than Episode Seven. George Lucas had always tried and failed to get Star Wars films done on time and under budget, especially on A New Hope. A big part of the lived-in universe aesthetic that came to define Star Wars was cheapness as much as a conscious choice. Luke Skywalker's pants are bleached Levi's. The Stormtrooper armor was made with a repurposed plastics molder that mostly made fish ponds and paddling pools. The original lightsabers were made from old camera flashbulb handles. But in the time since A New Hope, the Star Wars aesthetic and universe had solidified and grown, a lot of it in The Empire Strikes Back under the eyes of Irvin Kirshner, and the franchise now had a very specific look and feel to keep. Here's Chris Miller in conversation with Gareth Edwards, kind of summing the whole problem up. In District 9, it takes place on planet Earth, where you know people hold pencils that are just regular Earth pencils and stuff. And in Star Wars, there's not one thing, not one prop, not one set, not one anything that you don't 
create completely new, right? I mean, that's the crazy thing about doing these movies. Beyond just props and set dressing, people expect spectacle in a Star Wars movie. Fast-paced shootouts, big special effects, massive set pieces. They're all as much a part of Star Wars as lightsabers and Jedi. Despite this, John Knoll was certain that Destroyer of Worlds could be low budget. According to Ryan Church, one of the concept artists who worked on the initial visual development of the film, quote, John had a number in his head that he wanted to be able to make it for, and it was a low, low number. A really low budget. So that's why he pitched this neat, lean thing with limited characters. Coming off The Force Awakens, we were all blown away because it was the complete opposite of that. He even pitched reusing the sets from TFA just to prove that it could be done. Noel's vibe for Destroyer of Worlds feels a lot like a B-movie, the original low-budget franchise film. B-movies would cut corners by reusing the costumes and sets of bigger, higher-budget A-films, and because of that, B-movies could be a little schlockier, a bit rougher, and a bit more adult because they cost less to make, and therefore didn't have to make as much money to break even. And Destroyer of Worlds probably wasn't going to bring in the wide, family-friendly audience of The Force Awakens. It was a militaristic, self-contained heist with shades of Zero Dark Thirty, Mission Impossible, and the Guns of Navarone. But to pull it off, they'd need a director with experience making both lean indie films and big studio franchises. As a kid, Gareth Edwards knew the entire script of A New Hope by heart. For his 30th birthday, he went to Tunisia to see what remains of the Lars homestead. He got into filmmaking because it was kind of the closest thing you could do to joining the Rebel Alliance. If John Knoll has uncle energy, Gareth Edwards vibes like that older cousin at your childhood family Christmases, who'd help you build Lego and knew all the names of the Autobots and Decepticons. You know, an adult with a job, but still a bit of a nerd. When directing gigs were thin on the ground after film school, Edwards taught himself Adobe After Effects and started working as a one-man VFX company, working for about 15 years in the British TV industry before directing his first film, Monsters, in 2010. Monsters is a post-alien invasion road movie, made for about half a million dollars and shot in a documentary style across Central America, with Edwards acting as the film's writer, director and cinematographer, as well as doing all the visual effects himself. It's the story of a jaded news photographer, Calder, played by Scoot McNary, and his boss's daughter, Sam, played by Whitney Abel, who were trying to get out of Central America before the annual migration of extraterrestrial monsters shuts off air and sea travel for the next six months. The alien creatures aren't trying to destroy humanity. They've become part of nature, and sometimes nature will wipe out an entire city without prejudice. Edwards was really interested in how society would normalise an alien invasion, and there's some really prescient imagery when you watch monsters now, like a kid's cartoon about wearing your gas mask, or a giant wall built between America and Mexico, which achieves nothing but the illusion of safety. The depressing thing about watching monsters in a post-COVID world is that the death count feels optimistically low. Monsters also has a really well-executed tragic ending that I won't spoil, but it threads the needle between a satisfying ending to Calder and Sam's story without feeling saccharine or like a cop-out. 
Actors Scoot McNary and Whitney Abel improvise most of their dialogue to a rough scene plan, often working with local non-actors, and the result is a really personal, ground-level indie film that happens to be about an alien invasion. In an interview with the Sci-Fi Talks podcast at New York Comic Con in 2011, Edwards talked about making a monster movie feel personal. A lot of modern science fiction, not all of it, but a lot of the modern stuff that, that, that Hollywood produces, the biggest criticism you have when you leave the cinema, or I have, is, is yeah, it was an amazing spectacle. It was a great looking film, but I really didn't care about the characters and I wasn't engaged in the story. The success of Monsters got Edwards his second film, the 2014 reboot of Godzilla for Warner Brothers, which had a budget of about $160 million and put the weight of a potential franchise on Edwards' shoulders. Godzilla is… fine. It tries to do something really different and focus on the human characters rather than monster destruction, but those human characters kinda… suck. Despite a really strong opening, the story is restless and doesn't really know where it's going, and while it only runs for two hours, it feels a lot longer. It's also deathly serious for a movie about a big lizard fighting two big bugs, and while the movie made a profit and launched the Warner Brothers MonsterVerse, basically none of the characters from it appear in any of the other films. Godzilla is nowhere near as interesting as Monsters, and at least part of that is because it had the resources and slick professionalism that Monsters didn't. On Monsters, Edwards and his crew could fit in a single van and find the story and its moments in the real world before refining it and adding in those sci-fi elements in post. Monsters is grounded in a way that Godzilla could never be because, at the end of the day, Godzilla is a Godzilla movie. Also gonna throw it out there, Shin Godzilla, way better. Edwards was finishing up post-production on Godzilla when he met with Lucasfilm Story Group leader Kiri Hart to discuss doing a Star Wars anthology film. Disney's offices were only a 10 minute walk from the Warner Brothers lot, so Edwards took a lunch break and pretended he was just gonna get some food. Edwards was really worn down from doing Godzilla, and when Kiri Hart sent him John Knoll's pitch for Destroyer of Worlds that weekend, Edwards hoped that it'd suck so that he could pass on the film without feeling like he'd missed out. John Knoll was also a bit of a personal hero for Gareth Edwards. When he'd started out working in visual effects, Edwards had devoured the making of featurettes for The Phantom Menace, which Knoll was the VFX supervisor on. They'd met once at a screening of Pacific Rim, where Edward said he sounded like a geeky fanboy and was a bit embarrassed about it. Edwards assumed that Lucasfilm were talking to 20 other directors about Destroyer of Worlds, but they weren't. And while Star Wars veteran Lawrence Kasdan was already locked in to write an anthology film, he'd been pulled onto Episode 7, delaying the Han Solo film's development. Simon Kinberg, the other writer who was working on an anthology film, had been pulled back to Fox to write and produce X-Men Days of Future Past, and Josh Trank was also locked in at Fox on Fantastic Four until mid-2015. But Disney studio head Alan Horn had promised one Star Wars film every year, and the release date for the first anthology film had to be December 2016. Destroyer of Worlds, which had only been pitched in May 2013, was now in prime position to be the first standalone Star Wars film. The timeline is a little wiggly, but Edwards was probably speaking to Lucasfilm in late 2013, giving him three years to turn a six-page pitch and some initial visual development into an entire film. 
a film that had to come out by December 2016. Edwards was actually already attached to direct Godzilla 2 and 3, but Godzilla 2 didn't have a script yet, and Legendary Entertainment CEO Thomas Tull would later say that it had always been the plan for Edwards to direct a different film between Godzilla's, although at time of recording, Edwards has not returned to the franchise and has no announced intention of doing so. So, Gareth Edwards committed to Rogue One. He still had to finish Godzilla, which had a few months of post left, but by Christmas 2013, Gareth Edwards was on board to spend the next three years of his life in a galaxy far, far away. Not that he could tell anyone. His NDA was so tight that he couldn't tell his family what he had signed on for, even when they gave him Star Wars merch for Christmas. Gary Witter also grew up with the original Star Wars trilogy. His favourite was Return of the Jedi, and when the new films were announced, he rang his agent, as he was sure every writer in town was doing, and said he wanted to be a part of it. When Witter was sent Noel's treatment, he was surprised to realise it was a feature film. While Witter had written the screenplays for After Earth and Book of Eli, he was best known for his writing on games like The Walking Dead and Prey. He had a meeting with John Knoll and Kerry Hart and the General Story Group and basically pitched the ideas and influences that he wanted to bring to Knoll's pitch, which he explained on the Rule of Two podcast. I basically pitched him like my whole my whole idea was like basically this is a World War II men on a mission movie. Like I love those movies when I was a kid. I love Guns and Navarone. I love The Dirty Dozen, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, Kelly's Heroes. Uh, where Eagles Dare. It was drawing on all yeah. of those kind of classic World War II influences. And then I also meant the other thing I mentioned was Zero Dark Thirty. I thought I thought like this movie could have like a Zero Dark Thirty kind mm -hmm. of vibe. And I imagined Jin as this kind of character who's much like um Jessica Chastain's character in the one person going, you know, she's saying, you know, Osama bin Laden's in this house, you gotta listen to me and take this seriously. I imagine Jin is the one person in the rebellion saying, the rebels, the, the, the Empire's building this thing. And you have to take me seriously. I've got all this evidence that the Empire's building this thing that would come to be known as Death Star. I need to take me seriously. That was kind of my my way in. And I found out subsequently after I got the job, John showed me the book that he used to pitch Kathy Kennedy on making the movie in the first place. And it had all these references in it. And I was flipping through it. It was Dirty Dozen and Kelly's Heroes and Zero Duck 30. Oh, cool. And I just it was just all the same. We were just on the same page in terms of what we thought like the cinematic reference points for the movie were. Gareth Edwards and Gary Witter were announced as the director and writer of an untitled Star Wars anthology film in May 2014. A few weeks later, Josh Trank was also announced as the director of an upcoming film. No details were given, just the fact that they were going to be making standalone films in the Star Wars universe. But by the time that they were announced, Witter and Edwards had already gotten stuck into making changes to Noel's original treatment. The aliens, Senna and Lunak, were cut. K2SO was changed from a rebel tactician droid to a reprogrammed Imperial droid, with Witter giving him an acerbic sense of humour as a byproduct of the reprogramming. Saw Gerrera was added when Edwards and Witter wanted a Colonel Kurtz-style rebel character, and Kiri Hart suggested Saw, since he was a character George Lucas had created who didn't have the same baggage as other legacy characters. Other characters from John Knoll's pitch were streamlined. The male lead became a combination of Dre Nevis, Jerris Kestel, and Krennic, who was probably named Willix Cree, although for clarity's sake, I am still going to be referring to that character as Cassian. But the biggest change that Edwards and Witter made was shifting the focus of the film to Jin. According to Lucasfilm creative executive Rain Roberts, quote, 
John's pitch was really an ensemble piece. The emotional components were spread out among more of the characters. But when Gareth came in, he became interested in telling a much more personal story about a singular protagonist. The hero was always a girl named Jin, but Gareth wanted to explore her origins as the driving emotional engine for why she is completing this mission now. Jin was aged down from her 40s to her 20s, and her slaughtered family from Null's pitch were replaced by an Imperial engineer father, a younger brother she had to protect, and a Jedi-in-hiding mother. Although Jedi Mom was one of the first ideas nixed, so she was turned into a regular murdered mum. Despite its title, John Null's pitch didn't seem to have an Oppenheimer analogue, so Galen Erso was given that role, designing the Death Star and becoming a reluctant destroyer of worlds. Edwards wanted to approach Jin as an anti-Luke Skywalker. Luke was a farm kid who leaves home to go to war, but Jin was a child of war finally finding her home. Where Luke's family was a mystery he had to uncover, Jin knew exactly what had happened to hers and wanted to get as far away as she could from their legacy. And while Luke was male and Jin was female, Edwards deliberately avoided emphasising Jin's gender during story development. He told Daily Beast, quote, We were really keen not to view this character as a woman and have her do things because she's a woman, and just view her as a really cool character that we like, and we just happened to cast a female. We tried to do that trick they did on Alien, where Ripley was written as a man's role, and at the last minute they cast a female. So at the start, we tried to write Jin as a guy, just to get it off the ground, and then tried not to do anything to pander to the fact that she's female. I personally don't agree with this approach to writing female characters because it hinges on the assumption that there are two types of people women and people and the only way to write a woman who is people is to pretend she's not a woman to be fair to edwards Jin is a capable intelligent and complicated character and she doesn't ever face the same implicit risk of gendered violence that characters like leia and even more recently ray leia might have killed the hut who put her in a gold bikini but she still ended up in the bikini. And while Rey is often an active rebuke of sexist stereotypes, she still gets carried off unconscious and bridal style by Kylo Ren in The Force Awakens. But kind of undercutting the idea that Jin was being written without a gender is the fact that in Witter's draft, she and Cassian had a much more prominent romantic subplot, which is hard to imagine them genuinely doing if Jin was being written as a dude. Not unless everyone got real cool about a lot of stuff very quickly. Another issue with writing characters, quote, without gender, is that it makes male characters the default. And it's hard to ignore the fact that at some point after John Knowles' pitch, the one other female character in Rogue One disappeared. And this isn't entirely backed up, but I'm pretty sure Rhea Tala was cut by Witter, since in all my research on his drafts, she has never been mentioned. There's a few genuinely good reasons to cut Rhea. At this point, Jin had become her own pilot with her own ship, and with Jin now aged down, the old versus young, jaded versus idealist dynamic between Jin and Rhea probably just wouldn't have worked. The name Rhea Tala would later be recycled as an alias used by Sabine Wren in an episode of Star Wars Rebels, written by Gary Witter. Gary Witter's script opened with an opening crawl before going to Jin's idyllic childhood on a lush green family homestead with her loving mother and father. 
This was immediately ruined by Krennic, who showed up, killed Jin's mother, and kidnapped her father for his project. Jin was chased down by stormtroopers across the cornfields, but rescued at the last second by Saw Gerrera, who then raised Jin and taught her Terrace Kasi, a Jedi fighting hand-to-hand combat technique from a long-forgotten PS1 game. Cut to 15 years later and to Rebel Sergeant Jin Erso in the midst of a covert assault on an Imperial weapons development facility on the planet Edu. With her were reprogrammed Imperial droid K2SO and Rebel soldier Cassian, not his name. During their covert mission, they found the laser array from the Death Star being constructed, but they didn't really know its purpose. And in a stroke of bad luck, Krennic was also there to conduct a final inspection on the weapon. I'm not sure if in this draft Jin knew that her dad was on Edu, but he also was. But before the rebels could get any good evidence of whatever was going on, the Imperial facility was bombed by Saw Gerrera and his splinter group of rebels. Galen Erso was mortally wounded in the attack, and Jin managed to get her father back to a rebel base, but he died shortly after they got there. But not before telling Jin that he'd put a flaw in the Death Star. She just had to find the plans to be able to exploit it. Jin then travelled to Ord Mantell, a planet mentioned briefly in Empire Strikes Back, to speak to a shady arms dealer, and she brought Cassian along too, not knowing that he was a double agent who was feeding information to Krennic and the Empire. Krennic, meanwhile, went to chat to Vader at some point in all this other action. I'm not really sure chronologically where, and also Tarkin was there, but they didn't have that annoying boss credit-stealing dynamic. Jin learned from the arms dealer that Saw Gerrera was on a nearby moon. She went to speak with her estranged foster father. Unfortunately, Cassian also now knew Saw's location, so it was only a matter of time until Krennic did, and Krennic decided to show off his shiny new weapon by destroying Saw's moon. Saw Gerrera died facing off with the Death Star, while Jin narrowly escaped. Jin figured that this was just a few too many shitty coincidences and exposed Cassian as a spy. But after seeing the whole genocidal weapon that the Empire had developed, Cassian had a change of heart and stuck with the Rebellion. Also because my dude was down bad. Rebel Command, who up until now were divided by factional infighting, united in the face of an existential threat and planned an attack on Scarif to steal the Death Star plans. The attack was led by Jin and had two distinct phases. Jin, Cassian and K2 dressed as Imperials and infiltrated the Data Vault to steal the plans, while the Rebels staged an attack as a distraction to cover for our heroes who were already inside. It was a clockwork World War II caper kind of plan, with a bit of paranoid Zero Dark Thirty flavour, since Jin was on the inside working with a known traitor who was desperately trying to win back her trust and maybe had a thing for her. In another case of oops or bad luck, Krennic was also on Scarif at the same time as the Rebels. Jin and Cassian got the plans, but K2SO was killed on the beach in battle, and only seeing one way out, the Empire chose to fire the Death Star at Scarif. But Jin and Cassian managed to get picked up by Admiral Radice's rebel ship just in time and taken off planet. Krennic also managed to survive the blast and got rescued by Darth Vader, who promptly killed him for his failure. Meanwhile, Jin and Cassian transmitted the Death Star plans ship to ship over to Princess Leia on the Tantive V before Vader caught up with them. Princess Leia booked it out of there, but Radice's ship was destroyed, leaving nothing but debris floating in the inky blackness of space. And an escape pod, which Jin and Cassian were squirreled away in, hiding among the trash. Then, and this is less substantiated than anything else I've just said, but apparently... 
This draft ended in a wedding. Wedding aside, Jin and Cassian's survival came from an assumption by Witter and Edwards that even though none of these characters are seen again in the Star Wars universe, Disney would insist that at least some of them survived. Even though Empire Strikes Back and Revenge of the Sith both have kind of downer endings, everyone just took it as read that there was no way that Disney would sign off on a popcorn film that ended with the on-screen deaths of basically every character, especially in the first of a new series of films. Here's Gary Witter on IGN's Watch From Home Theatre in 2020. Gareth and I talked about it. It was one of the very first conversations we had. I think it was Gareth that brought it up. I said, I think this is a movie. I think they all have to die. I think this is a movie about sacrifice. And so this is really, really important Star Wars history that we're seeing here. The characters recognize that it's, it's perhaps fitting that they die. But we thought, oh my God, Disney will never let us do it. That we will fall in love with this idea of killing off all the characters. Disney won't let us do it and when we'll have our hearts broken. So we didn't follow through on our initial creative instinct. Um, and uh, I wish we had. Witter's draft had a lot of different influences on it, mostly trying to reconcile two different tones, the paranoid modern thriller and a World War II adventure film. There's a lot of really direct parallels to 1961's The Guns of Navarone, like a sheer cliff climbing sequence on Edu and the mole in the team who explains the run of bad luck that the heroes have had. Jin's mission for the truth while the audience knows what she's going to find is very Zero Dark Thirty. The opening scene when Krennic comes for Galen Erso was directly influenced by the opening of Inglorious Bastards. You can also see a lot of shades of Witter's favourite Star Wars film, Return of the Jedi, particularly in the third act battle that tracks one group of characters on the ground on one mission while others were staging a different attack in the sky. Gary Witter also came up with the film's title, Rogue One, which is kind of weird considering that in his draft, Jin's mission isn't a rogue mission, it's sanctioned by the Rebel Alliance. The title came from her call sign, which was Rogue Leader, the same call sign that Luke Skywalker has in The Empire Strikes Back. Rogue Leader was the other potential name that Witter put forward for a vote, but everyone chose Rogue One instead. Rogue One was always intended to dovetail neatly into A New Hope. There was always an appearance from Darth Vader, and once John Knoll assured everyone that ILM was up to the challenge, Peter Cushing's Grand Moff Tarkin was resurrected for the film, as well as a young Princess Leia. Rogue One also had the difficult task of tying up a heap of narrative loose ends and contradictions from A New Hope. Some of these are obvious, like Galen Erso's deliberate sabotage of the Death Star to explain why a major battle station would have such an obvious weakness, insert several decades of very tired Star Wars jokes here. This idea was all Gary Witter, because John Knoll maintained that a station as big as the Death Star was bound to have more than one floor, which is the most VFX supervisor answer I've ever heard. Some of the fixes are smaller, like the original Red 5 X-Wing pilot, who gets an on-screen death to explain why that call sign is available when Luke joins the Rebellion a few days later. Some of the other retroactive fixes are niche, bordering on pedantic. Like, there's inconsistent references in A New Hope to the Death Star plans being sent as a transmission or transmissions, which is solved in the film by Jin beaming the plans up as multiple chunks of one file, like a BitTorrent. While Gary Witter worked on the script, Gareth Edwards was working intensively with concept artists on the style and look of Rogue One. 
In very early development, the team took real-life war photography and photoshopped rebel helmets and stormtroopers into them, trying to capture the look of a more grounded, real-world war aesthetic that Edwards wanted to bring to the film. Later, Gareth Edwards and concept artist Matt Allsop and John McCoy gathered in Edwards' flat to work on a blend of storyboards and concept art, where they tried to create iconic images and then link them together into a scene. Some of the images were riffs on Ralph McQuarrie's concept art from the original Star Wars, and some were new takes entirely. One of them was based on an Area 51 alien encounter that Gareth Edwards and Matt Allsop had while they were working on Godzilla. The broader Rogue One development team worked from a mantra of not how it was, but how you remember it. Designs didn't have to be slavishly accurate to the original Star Wars films, but they needed to capture the feeling of watching those films as a kid. The deserts are more orange, the adats are taller and slimmer, the facial hair is better kept. A rough ratio of 80% new material to 20% old was encouraged. Back in the 70s, the original models for the Star Wars spacecraft had been made by kit bashing the parts of multiple model weapons kits and vehicles together. So John Knoll and the ILM team developed a digital library of parts that could be used to build ships and fixtures for Rogue One, taking that original hand-built design aesthetic and applying it to an entirely CG world. The team went through over 500 ship designs before settling on the U-Wing, with the brief that you had to feel like you wanted to pick it up and play with it if you were a kid. As part of his commitment to a lower-budget film for Rogue One, Gareth Edwards agreed with ILM that regardless of his mostly unplanned shooting style, he'd hand in a film with less than 600 visual effects shots. That's not nothing, but for comparison, The Force Awakens has 2,100 VFX shots. Monsters had 250, all of which Gareth Edwards had done himself, and Godzilla had about 960, which is half as many as your average monster movie, but on average, these were also twice as long as most VFX shots. There were very distinct storytelling pushes behind a lot of the design decisions at this stage. In The Art of Rogue One, co-production designer Doug Chang explains how, quote, in designing the overall look of the movie, we knew that it was going to begin with our heroine's story arc from a perfect memory of home, and that a trauma would shift the tone of the movie, taking her to a dark place that parallels what's going on in her mind at the time. As she progresses and her purpose becomes clearer, the settings themselves become brighter, until the very end is staged in another idyllic environment, because her mind is clear. There's another key creative who joined the Rogue One team in September 2014, during development. Editor Colin Gowdy. He'd worked with Gareth Edwards on Monsters and some of his earlier TV stuff, and Gowdy would end up working on Rogue One for the next 27 months. He originally came on for just three months and actually missed the first call from Lucasfilm to talk about the film because he dropped his phone in the bath. Here's Gowdy explaining his original job on Rogue One to the Filmumentaries podcast. So I came on it really for like three months uh, as kind of a trial thing to do the story reel for Gareth, mm. which was a presentation thing we did to Lucasfilm where we basically, we made a version of the film. We didn't have a completed screenplay at that point. We just had the, um, the story points. Mm -hmm. Each scene was described roughly as to what each scene was, you know, so young Gina. So, you know, as this girl growing up sees her parents at the time, her parents get shot. Um, and uh, goes into hiding, is rescued by Saw Guerrero, you know, that kind of thing. And so I would cut that together with the 
art concept work, the concept artwork done by the art department at Lucasfilm, which were huge paint, you know, paint digital paintings, uh, and they would occupy the full frame. And then down this corner here, one quarter of the screen would be the movie clip to represent that. So, for instance, I would take Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, Henry Fonda walking through the cornfield to the house killing killing everybody that's Krennic turning up on the you know but it wasn't I didn't just lift that scene entirely it was shot by shot so Vader's shuttle comes down from Return of the Jedi lands on the planet mm -hmm. cut to you know the homestead from um the searchers John Ford the searchers whereby they realize they're under they've got to rush and get out because the Indians are coming cut back to Henry Fonda walking through the cornfield cut back to the the little girl going through the tunnel from Leon you know Natalie Portman cut to Henry Fonda walking through court and it, so it was all shot by shot basis and it was the whole movie it was ran two hours um and and it just had captions so we had the dialogue from the original scenes and then captions to explain what was that so Jin runs across the through the cornfield pursued by stormtroopers and it was all a proof of concept Gareth Edwards watched it and described it as the most surreal movie he'd ever seen and sent it around the office so everyone would be on the same page about the film's pacing, tone and general influences. According to Colin Gowdy in another interview with Yahoo's Tom Butler, the story reel was also used to, quote, work out how much dialogue they actually needed in the film. Gary Witter was still working on the first draft of Rogue One at this point, and while it's common for the wider team to work from a story breakdown before the screenplay is finished, the idea of handing a writer a ghost version of a film before they finished their script and saying this is what they now have to match is either genius or making a film backwards. When I first read about the story reel years ago, it was with a lot less context, and I thought it actually explained why Rogue One felt so uneven and disjointed. The script wasn't written, it was assembled according to a list of references, and once you know that, you can't help trying to work out which scenes are made out of what parts. Jin's interrogation by the Rebel Council is Ripley's debrief from Aliens. The escape from Jeddah is the sandstorm from Mad Max Fury Road. Jin trying to get to her father around the Alliance bombs is Ford trying to get to his father around the Mutos in Godzilla. And Jin and Cassian's final moments are Calder and Sam's last moments in Monsters. But it turns out I was very wrong to think that the story reel explained how Rogue One ended up the way it did. The story reel was made so early in Rogue One's development that to really say it had any effect on the final version is giving it a lot of credit. If anything, it was made about a completely different version of the script and a different version of the movie. But the story reel still sticks in my mind because it's such a deliberate, kind of planned way to make a film. And it's also the opposite of the way that Gareth Edwards works. We'll talk a lot more about Edwards' directorial style next episode, but the story reel hints at a bigger recurring issue on Rogue One. Spending months building a very deliberate, well-set-out plan, and then abandoning it on the day in the name of spontaneity. You're also going to be hearing a lot more from Colin Gowdy throughout these episodes, honestly because he's delightful. Every interview I've heard from him, I'm like, I want to know more about this dude. He's also been really honest about the editing process on Rogue One, probably more honest than he should have been, and while he doesn't sugarcoat it, he also has such an infectious joy and love for the project that you can't help kind of getting sucked into it. 
Also, important note for your mind's eye, he looks like Arthur Weasley just coming back from a fishing trip. 2014 was an okay year for Disney, but not a great one. They released four of the top ten films at the US box office, but three of those were Marvel movies, Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain America the Winter Soldier, and Big Hero 6. Maleficent made around $750 million, but it also cost somewhere between $180 and $260 million, so the return on investment wasn't great considering the size of investment. Also, 2014 was the first year since Disney bought Pixar that the animation studio didn't release a film, because it was gearing up to release two in 2015, Inside Out and The Good Dinosaur. Overall, the entire vibe of Disney in 2014 was one of waiting for 2015, when the studio would be releasing an Avengers film, two Pixars, and a Star Wars. Towards the end of 2014, Gary Witter was finishing his draft of Rogue One. And in another part of the Lucasfilm building, another writer was finishing their draft of a Star Wars movie. Ryan Johnson, who handed in the script for The Last Jedi 15 months before he began production. It's hard to nail down exact dates, but it is entirely possible that the shooting script for The Last Jedi was basically locked before the first draft of Rogue One. In January 2015, Gary Witter finished up on Rogue One after completing the first draft of the screenplay. He shares a story credit with John Knoll on the final film. A story credit versus a screenplay credit is kind of a complicated question, but a good rule of thumb is that story credits usually apply to those who've laid the groundwork for the film in terms of character, plot, and structure, while screenplay credits go to later writers who can usually point at like specific lines of dialogue or actions or decisions that end up in the final film. Also, while we're here, fun fact, you can tell by the credits to a film whether the writers worked together or separately. If they worked separately, the word and will appear between their names, but if they work together, there's an ampersand. So, for example, The Force Awakens was written by Michael Arndt and J.J. Abrams, ampersand Lawrence Kasdan. Within a few weeks of Gary Weider leaving Rogue One, he was replaced by Chris Weitz, another lifelong Star Wars fan who'd been seven when A New Hope came out and saw it 19 times in cinema. Weitz's career kind of refuses categorization. He wrote DreamWorks Ants, then co-directed American Pie, then wrote and directed About a Boy, then wrote and directed The Golden Compass before directing Twilight New Moon. When asked if there was a common theme in his work, White said it was centering secondary characters and exploring the emotional relationships between people. White's was hired as a writer, but he is also a director and an Oscar nominee, which is two things he'd share with every subsequent writer on Rogue One. In 2015, Weitz had just done the script for Cinderella, so he was in Disney's good books when he finally got a meeting at Lucasfilm. And as he later told the Cult Popsha podcast, he spent that meeting consumed by one fear. So I didn't know until I was in the room what, what the, which one it was going to be. So, and I, um, this is a hot take, but I, I really don't like uh, Boba Fett, and I was worried it was going to be Boba Fett because I was going to be like, "This is this is my life, right?" I was like feeling like, really, I was feeling preemptively bitter. Like I get to work on Star Wars, but it's fucking Boba Fett. This guy is <laughs> killed by accident. That's how badass he is. When Chris White's read Gary Witter's draft of Rogue One, his first call was that they just 
really needed everyone to die. And in spite of what everyone had thought, Kathleen Kennedy agreed. Edwards would spend the next two years worrying that Disney were about to ask him to make sure at least one character survived, but from this point on, the ending was set. The times, places, and orders of those deaths would change multiple times, but from this point of development on, everyone died. Chris Weitz did a lot of structural streamlining to Gary Witter's script. Edu was moved from the beginning of the film to the middle, and Ord Mantell and Saw Gerrera's moon base were collapsed into one planet, Jeddah, which saved around $20 million of the budget. The characters of Bodhi Rook, Chirrut Imway, and Baze Malbus were all added under Weitz's watch. And Baze Malbus is actually named after one of Weitz's D&D characters. While Jin was still a rebel commander, Chris Weitz toyed with the idea of making her a deserter or a scavenger, which had to be scrapped when the Rogue One team were finally allowed to see some details from Episode 7. Cassian was still a compromised Imperial spy in the Rebellion, with the added rationale that Saw Gerrera had killed some of his comrades, so Cassian was working with the Empire on the condition that he'd be able to kill Saw which pretty significantly shifts his relationship with Jin as Saw's kind of foster daughter. And they did still have a relationship at this point. In fact, Weitz has said he wouldn't be surprised if some of those relationship scenes were shot. Weitz hasn't said much about Bodhi, but I assume he was added mostly as a plot necessity. With Edu moved to the middle of the film, they needed an Imperial defector to get the information out to kick off the entire plot. So an Imperial defector who also happened to be a pilot, one of the skills that the team was missing, it kind of just all worked. White's also added in the subplot about Tarkin stealing credit for Krennic's work on the Death Star. The third act mission to Scarif became a rogue, unsanctioned mission, where Jin, Cassian, and K2 still infiltrated an Imperial data vault to steal the plans, but then had to cross the battlefield to a second tower to transmit them to the Rebel fleet. Chris White's draft also dealt head-on with the absence of the Jedi. According to White's, Gareth Edwards wanted to build a world where there was no direct evidence of the Force, in a time before Luke Skywalker, and before hope. Chirrut was developed with Gareth Edwards as a force priest, and Baze was a murderer and criminal who had a weird, symbiotic, possibly codependent relationship with Chirrut. Baze did the murdering, and Chirrut would forgive him. Later on, they were both made Guardians of the Wills, part of an older order of non-Jedi who still worshipped and followed the force. Their name comes from a framing device in one of the very early drafts of Star Wars, where George Lucas wanted each film in the series to be an entry in the Journal of the Wills, an ancient document that set down the adventures of the Jedi Bendu. Later, George Lucas shifted the Journal of the Wills into a prophecy that foretold a chosen one called the Son of Sons, who wielded the force of others to protect the innocent and fight the dark side of the force, which was known as the Bogan. Darth Vader was strong with the Bogan. Luke at one point told Han Solo to drive the Bogan from your mind. If you've never worn your thongs and trackies down to the servo for a pack of durries or a Zupa Dupa, Bogan is the Australian equivalent of both redneck and chav. It's a very versatile word. One of the really fascinating things from Chris White's script that actually ended up in the final film, albeit in a very different shape, is the boar gullet. Saw's weird octopus tentacle creature who appears briefly to wipe Bodhi's mind. 
In White's script, the boar gullet had a much more prominent speaking role. It fed off emotions and acted as a memory trader, which meant there was a space Hannibal Lecter scene between Jin and the boar gullet, where Jin traded her traumatic childhood memories for information. Narratively, the boar gullet was a way to get inside Jin's head. A closed off rebel commander who has been hiding her childhood trauma isn't really going to talk about it with anyone, so creating the boar gullet gave a way for whites to directly get to the heart of the issue and really tell Jin's story in a way that Jin wouldn't be willing to herself. In early 2015, when Chris Whites had just started work on his draft, casting began. There were two frontrunners for the role of Jean Erso, Tatiana Maslany and Rooney Mara. Felicity Jones, who was winning a lot of awards for The Theory of Everything, was on a nice-to-have list, but she was kept on the back burner because she was locked into Ron Howard's Inferno, which would be shooting until July 2015. But Kathleen Kennedy loved Jones in her breakout film Like Crazy, and the start date for Rogue One was pushed back multiple times. Whether that was to accommodate Jones, or because the script wasn't ready, or for any of a number of other reasons, it's hard to tell. For a lot of the team, pushing the start date back gave them more time to prep, like director of photography Greg Frazier, who got more time to work on the LED volume screens with John Knoll. With shooting pushed back to August, in February 2015, Felicity Jones was announced as the lead of the still-untitled Star Wars standalone film. Concept art that must have been done after the casting, since it features Jones's face as the model for Jin, shows Jin piloting the U-Wing in a rebel helmet covered in tally marks, which in-universe is a way of counting your kills. In April 2015, Gareth Edwards fronted up to Star Wars Celebration Anaheim, the Lucasfilm-approved fan convention. He went partly as a fan and mostly as a director, taking the stage with Kathleen Kennedy and Kiri Hart to debut a quote-unquote trailer that announced the film's title as Star Wars Rogue One. The trailer was entirely previous because the film hadn't actually started shooting yet, and we'll talk much more in depth about this and the other trailers in an upcoming episode. But the vibes were good. Edwards was meant to be chatting alongside Josh Trank, the other director who'd been confirmed to be making an anthology film, but Trank dropped out at the last minute, tweeting that he had the worst flu of his life. Trank really was sick, but he'd also been told to stay home by Lucasfilm, who were reviewing whether or not to fire him. Trank's Fantastic Four reboot at Fox was in chaos, due to be released in a few months with massive reshoots being effectively directed by producers Simon Kinberg and Hutch Parker instead of Trank. The way Trank tells it, he was set up to fail, surrounded by more experienced crew who weren't interested in hearing the opinions of a guy who'd made one pretty good film. But even after reading Trank's perspective in a very sympathetic profile piece written by Matt Patches, it's hard not to feel like Trank kind of set himself up to fail in a lot of ways too. He spent six months working with writer Jeremy Slater on the story and just didn't really like anything. He didn't like the Fantastic Four and he didn't want to be making a movie about them. Even after Fox brought in other writers, the film didn't have a third act. Trank's cut of the film was morose and made people uncomfortable, which Trank says was his goal. After he delivered that cut, Studio 20th Century Fox brought in a much more experienced editor, Stephen Rivkin, who had cut Avatar and the first three Pirates of the Caribbean films. 
According to Trank, Rivkin chose different takes to him in every single scene of the film and effectively became Fantastic Four's de facto director, even though his cut of the film required millions of dollars of reshoots to work. Due to Directors Guild rules, Trank had to be on set for those reshoots, even though they were being run by the film's producers Kinberg and Parker, which Trank says felt a lot like being castrated. When it was released, Fantastic Four was savaged by critics, audiences and Trank, who blamed the studio's interference for the film's failure. All this fan stick drama was happening over at Fox, which at the time was a separate studio to Disney, and it could have all been swept under the rug if Simon Kinberg, producer of Fantastic Four, wasn't also one of the writers who'd initially been brought in to work on the standalone films. He'd spoken really highly of Josh Trank when Lucasfilm were first interested in him as a director, and Kinberg was probably attached to produce Trank's film. Kinberg reportedly went to Kathleen Kennedy and, quote, communicated his displeasure with Trank. Several weeks later, on the same weekend that Avengers Age of Ultron was released, Josh Trank and Lucasfilm quietly released a joint statement about Trank's decision to leave the untitled Star Wars film. According to Trank, he quit before they could fire him. Gareth Edwards is, by all reports, a very different guy to Josh Trank. He's older, softly spoken, and came up through television and the smaller British industry rather than being a Hollywood brat like Trank. Trank was often reported as being distant and isolated on set, where Edwards is so hands-on that he defaults to operating the camera. By this point, Edwards had also already finished his second big-budget movie, and he'd even weathered production trouble on Godzilla when the original producers were fired and a lawsuit hovered over the film until well after its release. Rogue One was also in a completely different state of development to Trank's film. Chris Weitz was working on a second draft of the script, where Trank hadn't even started work on his screenplay. They had a lead actor locked in, and they'd be in Pinewood in less than six months. Lucasfilm hadn't just seen the scripts for Rogue One, but also the entire visual development and even a shadow version of the film, and they were so behind it that they were willing to let Edwards go against all expectations and kill off the entire cast. Really, the only thing that Gareth Edwards and Josh Trank had in common was that they'd both been hired to make a Star Wars anthology movie, and now it was just Edwards. But he wouldn't be alone for long. In July 2015, Phil Lord and Chris Miller were announced as the directors for the untitled Han Solo movie. A month later, on the same day that Lucasfilm announced Rogue One had started shooting, Colin Trevorrow was announced as the director for Star Wars Episode Nine, just a month after the incredible success of his second film, Jurassic World. Once again, Edwards would be the only one of this group to finish his film. Next time on Going Rogue, we'll be getting into the production of Rogue One, Gareth Edwards' philosophy of filmmaking, and the problems of making a period film set both in the 70s and in a galaxy far, far away. Going Rogue is written and presented by me, Tansy Gardam, with editorial assistance from Charles O'Grady and Christian Byers. Our music is by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech and Shane Ivers of Silverman Sound Studios, and our logo uses a photo by Annika Mickelson. 
You can find a link to this episode script with all sources in the episode description or on the show's Twitter account, goingrogue underscore pod. I want to give special credit this episode to the IGN Watch From Home commentary on Rogue One with Chris Weitz and Gary Witter, which informed a lot of the reconstructions of their drafts that I did through this episode. If you're liking the show, please tell anyone else you think would like it. And if you don't like the show, please don't use the internet to tell me that you don't like the show. Or that I sound like Julia Gillard with a cold. Trust me, I've heard it before.